0: Hello, welcome to the D&D Roundtable presented by The Tome Show. I'm your host, James Intricasso. Please use the affiliate links on thetomeshow.com whenever you shop on Amazon or D&D Classics to help support the show. Just go to thetomeshow.com, click on the links in the show notes for this episode or any other, and then shop as you normally would. Today, we're talking about Dungeonscape and some Dungeon Master's Guide previews. And then we've got an interview with Wolfgang Bauer of Kobold Press about the Cobalt Guide to Combat. First, let's meet our panel. With me today at the roundtable are Alex Basso. Hello. Rudy Basso. Greetings. Allison Rossi. Hello. And John Fisher. Hey. And today's get-to-know-you question for our panel, what is your favorite undead monster? Alex Basso, let's start with you. Uh,
1: it's my favorite undead monster uh, <laughs> is the Death Knight. Uh, I mean, it's an undead. It's not super monstrous, but um I really don't. Uh, that's what I like about it. It's not like a stupid, mindless, undead being. Um, and it's not a lich. Um, I like that they're kind of like evil paladins almost. I don't know, death Knights are cool, not boring, tough opponents, and, you know, something to respect when you fight it. Unlike a zombie. You cannot respect a zombie.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I would actually argue that that is quite a monstrous creature. Uh, and they are in the Monster Manual, so I will go ahead and say they are indeed oh. a monster. Good pick. All right, Allison Rossi.
2: Well, I feel like I'm about to be judged, but I'm going to have to say that mine is a lich. Um, I just, I don't no! know. I, I like, I think liches are cool because, I don't know, I like things where you have a lot of fluff with them. Then you can do so much with them. And I feel like liches are definitely that. There's so much you could do with their backstory if you want to develop them into something big. You could do so much with with how they became a lich and what what was that evil deed that kind of pushed them over the edge. You could do a lot with how they how they choose to do their phylactery. You can choose how you want them to present themselves. I don't. I just feel like there's so much you could do with liches. So I, I think they're awesome. Death Knights are cool too. Don't get me wrong, but I prefer liches.
0: I understand. And you know, uh, dragons can be liches too, which is pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, so
2: I mean, that's cool too. So you can't go wrong.
3: John Fisher, what is your favorite undead? I was definitely about to say lich, but I won't because now I'm going to say Alhune. I stole it. Ooh, Alhoon. the Mindflayer Lich, because it's the two oh. best monsters combined into one monster. Ah, that's a good question. Ooh. Does it still eat your brain? Uh, you know, I don't know because in fifth ed there isn't one yet.
0: But uh, mm-hmm. let's hope so. I would th- assume it requires like a double serving of brains—one to feed its undead hunger, and then another to feed its mindflayer hunger.
3: I, yeah, I think they're—I think they are mentioned in the monster manual, but it's uh. It's it's mostly cultural in that I think it says that liches hate them, but maybe I'm misremembering, and that's another thing I was reading. But in any event, yeah, they uh, hopefully they do eat brains, and that's how they stay alive.
0: Nice. Well, that or is a, not hopefully. alive. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is a deep cut. Thank you very much, Rudy Basso. Bring it home for us. What's your favorite undead
1: monster? So I think zombies are, have nothing compared to the ghast, which to me is just way more terrifying because they. Are intelligent they are tricky they're deceptive they're stinky um they they have a lot more evil to them i feel like because they're just naturally they just want to consume human flesh which is terrifying and they can just touch you and freeze you paralyze you and then slowly each that's that is much scarier to me than the zombie which uh, i think we're a little overwhelmed with in terms of pop culture so bring the ghast i'll see the walking ghast show that's <laughs> <laughs> Yeah
0: uh, yeah, definitely more terrifying than a zombie. I agree with you a thousand percent. Okay guys, so the first thing we're going to talk about is Dungeonscape. and full disclosure, we actually recorded this podcast yesterday, which was the day that the Dungeonscape announcement we're about to talk about came out. Uh, Unfortunately, we recorded the podcast before then, so we're actually recording this part of the podcast, this first segment, after we recorded the rest of the podcast. Very confusing, I know, but the reason is because some big news came out about Dungeonscape, so we scrapped everything else we talked about, and now we're going to talk about the big news, and you're about to hear why. Unfortunately, Rudy Basso was not able to join us for this section of the podcast, but you will hear his dulcet tones throughout. On to the big news, it was announced on the Dungeonscape website and on the Wizards of the Coast website that the partnership between Trapdoor Technologies, who is making the Dungeonscape D&D 5th edition app, and Wizards of the Coast has been terminated. The people at Trapdoor go on to say that they will still put out some iteration of Dungeonscape. They don't go on to say if it's for a new system, they don't go on to say if they're somehow going to work around the currently non-existent OGL for 5th edition, and that there will be more information to come. Wizard's statement is very short. Uh, it looks like both people are a little sad that they couldn't make this partnership work. Right now, we don't really have much more information than that. The rumor mills are flying. Uh, we are hearing things You know, all all sorts of things. Uh, We know Trapdoor was a smaller company, and right now the rumor mill is essentially saying they weren't able to meet the demands and deadlines of Wizards of the Coast. Uh, So we're going to talk about this a little bit, talk about how we're feeling, what we think the future of Dungeonscape might be, and whether or not we think we're going to see digital tools for 5th edition, which WotC on their site has said they are still planning on digital support, um, but no further details. Details are given at this time. So, why don't we start with the man, the myth, the legend, John Fisher. John, tell me how you felt when you read these announcements, and what you think the future for Trapdoor is.
3: Well, okay, so how I felt, obviously disappointed. Um, you know, we I, we're all part of the... We all were part of the beta test when it was a thing, and uh, it was certainly... Uh, less functional than I think people expected bait test to be. But nonetheless, uh, I was certainly hopeful that it would get to where it needed to be to be a good functional uh, digital tool. At the same time, I was not super surprised, maybe just with the timing that I was surprised, but you know, it's, it's one of those things where you maybe could see the writing on the wall a little bit. Uh, There were a lot of, bugs that need to be fixed and we're not getting fixed super quickly um and the web version uh that's the only version i saw i didn't see the android version i didn't see the ios version so maybe that is i'm sure that's what people are going to assume that the issue is they didn't obviously say in their announcement what caused this uh rift between the two companies but uh you know i, I think that's what 99 percent of people are going to assume unfortunately uh, it's one of those things where I would have hoped that it would have gotten gone better, but I can't say I'm surprised. Also taking into account the uh, horrifically bad record that Wizards of the Coast has with digital tools, uh, which really can't be uh, forgotten uh, or ignored. So, yeah, overall, uh, pretty unfortunate. I am kind of worried to see what this is going to do to the uh, sort of apparent fifth edition business model right now where they are... Uh, they're contracting jobs out to smaller companies, and if they had a huge product that they've been touting for a year and that couldn't work, then I am concerned with what they'll do next. We'll see. You, I think you, you'd also ask where, where Trapdoor is going to go from here. Hopefully, I wish them all the best. They, I, I think their main focus prior to this was eBooks, so hopefully they uh, they keep doing that really well, uh, and uh, we'll see more of them in the future. Hopefully, but who knows. Sure, and they have said they're hopefully continuing
0: Dungeonscape in some form. There's all sorts of whispers on that front. Again, nothing confirmed, nothing that we know. I know people are wondering if Pathfinder is going to scoop them up, although I know Pathfinder already has a fair amount of digital support through Roll20 and Hero Lab and all sorts of other virtual game tables. And John, of course, you're referencing that um, even as far back as the 3.5 days, there was disappointing digital support for D&D, and certainly there was an overpromised 4E digital support that never really came to fruition, and I think ultimately hurt Wizards with 4th Edition. So it is certainly disappointing to hear. I know a lot of folks out there are pretty upset about this decision. Allison What are your thoughts? Do you think that there is a good future for Dungeonscape with Trapdoor in one way or another? And how did you feel when you heard this announcement?
2: Well, I definitely felt really shocked when I woke up this morning to see an email from you guys saying, hey, you know, we recorded this stuff last night. And by the way, um, Dungeonscape actually isn't happening anymore. So I was pretty shocked to hear that just last night we were talking about it. And now, you know, when I go on the Dungeonscape beta, like all my characters are gone, like ev- like everything is basically gone. I just, uh, I, I don't know what Trapdoor is going to do with this, especially because it seems like, they they had something that looked like it had a lot of potential. And now are, now that they're no longer partnered with Wizards of the Coast, are they just going to completely lose steam and, and that's going to be it? I, I don't really know where they're going to go. And I'm curious to see where Wizards takes this. I mean, they like you said, with Pathfinder, they have like Hero Lab and all that other stuff. So is Wizards going to allow their fans to create things? I mean, you can see how successful Roll20 was with opening up... Uh, character sheets to to the public to to basically formulate all of them for all these different games. So it's not like outsourcing to the public isn't a good thing to do. You get your players into everything. You get them helping you create things, and that they'll do it for free. Like people love D anD D. They'll do all this stuff for free. So I don't I don't know. I really want to see what Wizards does with this because, as you said as well, they don't have the best reputation for their online tools. So will they get it right with Fifth Edition? They seem to be getting everything else right, so I'm hoping they can try and get this right.
0: Certainly, and that's what I would hope to see, that there is going to be some effort made, and all sorts of things are being touted about. Again, that the people at Hero Lab are going to be contacted to help out with this. Uh, Everything from that to, we heard Watsi is going to buy... Roll twenty. Um, so, and again, all rumor, all speculation out there, guys. Uh, be careful what you hear, and and make sure you know the source. Alex, how did you feel when you read this announcement? And uh, what do you think is lies in the future for Trapdoor and Dungeonscape?
1: Uh, definitely disappointing and surprising. Um, but I gotta say, I mean, I feel like it's it's gonna it's the right decision for Wizards of the Coast to make. I mean, the last thing I feel like they needed was another tool that they kept promising you know would be coming uh you know from the beta it looks like there was still a lot left to go so who knows when this would have actually been released um so for them to cut it now instead of having to promise something that wouldn't be here for who knows how long uh and then or maybe even eventually release something that again was a very disappointing tool Um, after you know fourth edition the uh player table You know, only being out for a year and a half or whatever before they cut that. Uh, I think that looked really bad on them. So to cut it early, you know, it was probably a a good thing to do. You know, they noticed it's not going to be what they wanted, so get rid of it. You know, hopefully there's time to, you know, move on to something else. Um, Or maybe, honestly, I feel like the past couple months since we've been discussing Dungeonscape, uh, it's been less and less appealing to me. Roll 20, I think, has really stepped up, uh, and it's adding a whole bunch of new features every time I access and use it. So dungeon skip to me was, was a lot less important than initially it was when it was first announced. Um, How, what, how trapdoor studios is going to go from now on. I'm not really sure. I mean, this seemed like it was really catered for, you know, obviously for D and D fifth ed. um, I don't know how much they actually have left. I mean, they, from their, their posts, they seem like they have an idea of what they're going to do. So good luck to them. Um, you know, I feel like that space is becoming more and more crowded with companies these days. So it's going to be tough for them to kind of make their mark uh, and make a product that people would like. You are of the opinion, Alex. And I think John would probably
0: agree with you that, that wizards dropping, Trapdoor developing Dungeonscape was a choice made because it was going to take much longer um, to get the tools than they wanted, and this may actually speed up getting digital assets. I also think you're right that Wizards was probably looking around and saying, look, there's all this Roll20's making stuff, fans are creating things, there isn't going to be much of a use for Dungeonscape. So I'm wondering, what do you guys think the future is going to look like for Wizards of the Coast? Or rather, what would you like to see? Because we could sit here and speculate all day long. What is it that you would like to see? Do you guys want to see just some simple PDFs? And then are you happy with everything else that's already out there? Uh, Are you fine with just hardback books? You don't care what they do next because there's a whole lot less to cull through the way there was for 4th edition. And you sort of needed that character builder to help stay organized. What are your thoughts? Allison, what would you like to see in the future as far as digital tools go for uh, Wizards of the Coast and D&D?
2: Well, I think with 5th with edition, already character creation seems a lot simpler. However, I do still have that background in playing D&D and tabletop role-playing games. So it kind of comes a little bit more naturally. However, I still see a lot of posts, especially on Reddit, of people like, how do I get into D&D? Okay, I bought the books. Now what do I do? And I feel like there's still people that they want to get into it, but they need that extra walkthrough of character creation. They want someone to hold their hand through it so they don't make the wrong decisions and i feel like some sort of character creation guide for them would be useful i don't care if it's an app or what it is um but but just something to help other people get into it because as it is with fifth edition the barrier to entry for for dnd is so much lower than previous editions
0: alex basso what about you what would you like to see as far as digital tools go for wizards of the coast and dnd in the future
1: oh man i I really don't know at this point to be honest uh i i'm gonna go i I really don't uh you know need a a character builder i know like allison said um fifth edition is really easy you know takes 15 minutes to make a character yeah new people it can be tough i understand that but i think the majority of their audience that character builder is not going to be that useful um so that's not something i i really want to see uh what always interested me in Dungeonscape was maybe the possibility of I don't know new ways to use it, like at the table, maybe new ways for your your party to interact. But and I was also just super excited for a tablet um, application. Uh, so having any sort of official application on a tablet that worked well with the interface, I would be nice. But uh, at the end of the day, like I said, Roll Twenty to me is just getting better and better every time. So. It's really not that much of a priority that Wizards even releases digital tools at this point.
0: (laughs) What would you think if Wizards of the Coast made some sort of deal with Roll20 to integrate even more of the content in there? Um, You know, you can buy right now in Roll20, you can buy whole adventures for some systems and everything's right there. All the maps and everything are ready to go for you. I would love to see something like that for some of the Wizards adventures. How awesome would it be to have Horde of the Dragon Queen right there online?
2: Um, As a huge, huge, huge fan and supporter of Roll20, I would totally love to see 5th edition stuff more integrated with Roll20. I think that would be an amazing partnership because... I I don't know. So many people use it and I always suggest roll 20 to people who are interested in playing but don't have anyone to play with in person. So having that stuff like even like you said, whore the dragon queen available right there online would probably make it so much easier for people to continue getting in fifth edition and then perhaps turn them into kind of lifelong customers and making them buy the books in real life. So I I would definitely love to see that.
3: Um I re- I would really like it a lot if uh Wizards actually stayed as far away from Roll20 as possible. I don't want them near it. Wow, they why have, is that? They because they have a terrible track record with digital tools. <laughs> Roll20 works great. I don't need them to try and fix it. I don't need them to try and monetize it because if they ch- if they have a licensing deal, if they were to have a partnership with Roll20, Roll20 would start to cost money. Right now it doesn't. It absolutely would though if they did that. Um, you know, the, the reason they had the partnership with trapdoor in the first place was for, uh, an ebook because they didn't want to put out PDFs or they didn't want to put up PDFs right away. They wanted to have, a, a more, uh, DRM type system to, you know, make sure that they could make their money, which I respect, like they need to make money. They are a company that that's their purpose, but, uh, yeah, I want them to stay as far away from D20 just in general. For those two reasons, um, yeah. Uh, but as far as you know, the future of digital tools—I uh, uh, don't know. I think that the best thing for them to do would probably be to open it up. But I just don't know that. I don't think they're going to do that. I would, I would be very surprised if if Wizards had like an absolute, completely open license, like a royalty type license. I could totally see, but. Uh, I don't see them allowing people to give away tools for free.
0: I definitely wonder if they're gonna hurry to put out some PDFs now at this point um, because there are a lot of people clamoring for that support and they were told don't worry it's coming with Dungeonscape you'll be able to have ebooks and that sort of thing um, so I if I were them I would definitely get my rear into gear about putting out some PDFs um, but you know obviously these things, I'll take time and it's difficult for them to do. Um, As far as Roll20 goes, I definitely see your point if they entered into like a heavy partnership, but I do think there are some systems that are simply selling adventures through, The Roll20 app right now, and I think maybe something like that, if Wizards would want to do that and not actually have Total Control, which you could see them as one of the biggest players in the market certainly wanting to have Total Control, uh, it ending out in a sort of subscription fee kind of way, which would not be awesome. Alex Basso,
1: would you want there to be some partnership between WotC and Roll20? Settle the debate. I mean, I, I would like to be able to, you know, buy maps through it. Um I mean I'm playing in a game right now where my brother is DMing and he's pretty much he's a pretty new dungeon master, so I know for sure being able to buy maps would help him out a ton. And it would help out the group I'm with, who is actually besides myself, all first timers to Dungeons and Dragons. So I mean be able to buy uh adventures would definitely make it a lot easier for everyone. And you know, anything more than that, I'm with John. I don't want them I don't want to pay monthly subscription pass away for roll 20 i don't want that risk at all
3: but being able to just purchase adventures i'm cool with that we have no idea like what happened zero uh, idea zero we can speculate based on the beta that it wasn't going fast enough uh but we also know like the pricing model was not worked out and uh you know that was the only thing that was keeping apparently that was the only thing that was keeping. Uh, touch off of ios was there was no pricing model so they couldn't get approved for anything we don't know like what went wrong obviously but i really 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 hope that wizards looks at its history of digital uh digital tools and and asks themselves what 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 did we do wrong even if they're not at fault even if to them it seems like they're not at fault i really hope they ask themselves what they did wrong because they did something wrong even if they don't think they did uh and they need to not do that anymore uh, just that their history is just too negative at this point.
0: Amen to that, brother. I agree. Yeah, they should take a long, hard look and see what they can change.
2: Um, I guess I never really thought about the, the whole aspect of Roll20 potentially costing money versus, you know, choosing to, to donate to them. So that that's a really good point. I definitely would not want to pay to use Roll20 just because... I'm used to it being free and it's a great free resource and there are other free resources similar to them. So I would definitely consider like moving to another platform if I had to pay a monthly fee. So if there was a way to get D and D stuff for free on roll 20 or like you choose to pay for it, that would be awesome. Otherwise I wouldn't want to pay every month.
0: All right, Guys, Let's move on to the Dungeon Master's Guide previews that were coming out as part of the Extra Life program. ...that Wizards of the Coast was participating in. When they got certain amounts of money donated to them, they released new previews. And we talked about the first three, the Deck of Many Things, the Figurines of Wondrous Power, and the Magic Rings on another podcast. And now we're going to talk about the last three, the Hand and Eye of Vecna and the Orb of Dragonkind. That's all one preview. Uh, firearms, explosives, and alien technology as another preview and the table of contents. And we're actually going to start with the table of contents because I think it gives us a good overview of the dungeon master's guide. So what I want to know about the table of contents is what things were you really pumped to see? And did you feel that anything was left out? And if so, what? And let's start with you, Alex Basso. When
1: it came to actual specifics, like Dungeon Master Guide, definitely the least interesting book for me as someone who has never DM'd and doesn't have any plans to ever do it. Um, so what I was looking at was Treasure. <laughs> uh, and uh, 100 pages worth, worth of Treasure. I love that. Yeah. I'm super excited for that. And the other thing I looked for was Combat Options. Watch uh, opposite of 103 pages of Combat Options. I do not love that. Uh, my guess is maybe Flanking and um, you know, Large Scale Combat are in there. And that's about it. Uh, But, I mean, otherwise, like I said, DM, guide, not not too much stuff I'm really interested in. Sure, and I think we're going
0: to see some stuff perhaps about creating combat options, which may be why you only see three pages right now, because it's under a heading called Dungeon Master's Workshop, which I think is going to give us a lot of like, oh, so here's some stuff we suggest, but if you want to open up the... You know, the inside of this game system and pull some levers and tinker with some gears. Here are some ways to do that. Um, So I'm really excited to see what is in those big head, like combat options could mean so many things. So I'm excited to see those three pages. Uh, Let's hear what you have to say about the Dungeon Master's Guide, Rudy
1: Basso. I see five pages for combat under running the game. So, uh, yeah, we're all going to different spots. I, uh, I was okay. thinking combat options was probably where extra modules would be. Uh, uh, but James There might is, you know, be more might stuff add- under running the game. Yeah. Using ability scores, there might be more modules there. It's just, you know, there's no section that's like, modules! Um, which maybe would have been more helpful? I, I'm not really sure how layout design works. But uh, the one thing that I think is funny is the the subchapter titled The Roll of the Dice. Uh, spelled R-O-L-E so I look forward to seeing what each die means on the whole Uh, yeah I'm mostly with Alex the DMG is kind of a lot it's kind of overwhelming for someone who doesn't think on a grander scale like the DMing I do is mostly with the books with an adventure book this is mostly stuff to make your own world and make your own multiverse a whole chapter on creating a multiverse which is, again, it's grand. It's big scheme, which is great. Um, for someone who really wants to dive into this, this looks to be the perfect book. I also love know your players. I hope that they break down what each player is. I know they've done that in past iterations, and I've always enjoyed those, and I thought they've been very silly. So, cool, DMG, thumbs up.
0: Nice, nice. Well, I'm glad to hear that uh, people are giving this a positive review because I was so pumped up about it when I saw it. All right, let's bring some DM blood in here. Allison Rossi, when you were looking at the table of contents, were you getting pumped up like I was?
2: I certainly am getting pretty excited to see the DMG. I mean, I only started DMing a couple weeks ago but it's really exciting because I do eventually want to get to the point where I'm creating my own world and perhaps my own multiverse you know who kn- who knows where I can go with it um but I'm excited to see like uh under chapter 1 a world of your own the the styles of play tiers of play and flavors of fantasy because I put a huge emphasis on role playing like I do like rolling for things but I like when my players role play and when I get to role play with them I think that just makes it that much more fun it's probably why I kind of avoided fourth edition. Um, but I, I'm just really excited to see how they help people who don't know how to role play. They come into these types of games and they're like, well, there's dice and I roll dice and, you know, things happen and I kind of do spells and stuff. But, but what about all the other cool things you could do besides just doing that or what cool things you could do with your spells or, you know, how you can... You know, converse with the other players in character, you know, I, I like seeing that kind of thing develop. So I'm very excited for that part, and well, really everything else. Treasure uh, poisons would be interesting, and diseases for for a DM's perspective. You know, other ways potentially kill your your players, but not actually outright kill them. So
0: that's right. I'm interested. Yeah, and underneath there, there is a section about madness. Uh, which I am also interested in checking out uh, because I would love to drive my players mad. John Fisher, I would love to hear what you're thinking about the Dungeon Master's Guide table of contents.
3: Uh, all right, so things that I'm seeing that I that I like definitely chases because the normal D and D mechanic. I don't really know how a chase would work because it would just be initiative, and whoever's first initiative would would just win. So <laughs> hopefully. There's a better way of doing that, and that's in there, because I think that would be something cool to ha- have in a game and uh, and not have to just have oh you rolled initiative first you won the end. Uh, other things I'm liking uh, that I'm interested in, in seeing how they might work is the creating a spell for whatever reason I'm not I'm not really sure why that jumped out at me. I think that um, I, I think we're probably less likely to see a lot of spells being added to the game uh, via rule books would be my guess maybe there, there probably will be some but um just because it every time you add a spell you're making spell casters more powerful and everybody else wouldn't get more powerful so uh i think that will probably be a, be a good avenue for people who want to try something that maybe doesn't fit in with what's in the the player's handbook right now uh assuming the, DM, the their dm will let them do that i'm actually looking at the original because they 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 actually released the table of contents, and I guess it was a previous draft. And then like the same day, they must have had a new version that that they had just finalized. Uh, so they replaced it. So I'm trying to see and compare the two uh, and see what the differences are. Like I'm seeing rewards at 20th level on the original one they sent out, and that's not on the new one. So I hope that's still in there because I think that's a good thing to talk about with DMs.
1: I love that sentient magic items gets its own subchapter and that there's five pages dedicated to it. There's nothing cooler than talking to your sword and having your sword talk back to you.
0: Let's talk about the hand and eye of Vecna. When I think of magic artifacts in D&D, these are the first two that come to mind. They're super iconic You know, you cut off your hand, attach that hand to Vecna, and you know interesting stuff is going to happen. The story has just gotten richer, and you have gotten more powerful uh, at the cost of your hand and possibly some pieces of your soul. So let's talk about the hand and eye of Vecna. Do these feel like the iconic items to you? Do they feel big and powerful and risky? Do you like them? Let's start with you, Allison Rossi.
2: Okay, so before this, I only saw it briefly uh, in a friend's campaign that I played in where she she had the hand and eye of Vectina that we had to get, but no one ever attached it to their bodies. So I don't really know what would have happened uh, if that had happened. But just reading about it, it's like, wow, you get so many cool benefits um, and also potential awful things happening to you that I feel like if I hadn't, an evil enough or potentially evil enough character that I totally want to attach, you know, the hand to, well, cut off my hand and put the hand on my hand. Who knows? Um, but just, wow. The, the possibility to, to drop to like one HP. And then if you have, what is it? The, the hand or the eye, you get a one D 10 HP back, you know, all this, all this cool stuff. It just, it, I I would want to put it in a campaign, maybe not for low level players, but it's definitely something that, that seems like, a great thing to focus on for for putting out this preview.
0: Let me throw it over to John Fisher. John Fisher, you loving this hand and eye of Vecna?
3: So I really like the the fluff that they that they put in there. Um, it does create uh, you know the kind of feeling for an effective MacGuffin, if nothing else. From a player's point of view, I'm actually not that uh, excited about it. I think that. Um I came to the realization when I was reading this uh, again today uh for this podcast that uh you in this book whenever it talks about you it's talk- I think it's actually talking to the dm and whatever npc the dm is playing because there's a lot of things that uh, you know a lot of it has to do with your uh like the one big thing is your your alignment changes to neutral evil and for a pc that doesn't really do anything uh, I mean, I guess the DM can say if you don't, you know, play it neutral evil, then, you know, there will be consequences. But there's not really a mechanic. Like, actually, uh, the, the the Iron Hand of Vect in 4th E, uh, I wasn't a huge fan of 4th Ed, but I actually really liked the mechanic they had there where you gained more powers when you performed specific deeds. So if you were actually demonstrably being evil the hand and eye became more powerful. They became more attuned to you. Uh, and I, I actually would have preferred a mechanic like that, to be perfectly honest. Uh, but from a DM's point of view, I think this would work really well if an NPC, is, if it's like a race against time and the NPC gets the eye and hand of Vecta, now they become more powerful and can do these new things that the PCs have to react to. I think that's really effective. And maybe the, D, maybe the, the NPC... Uh, doesn't realize the, the cost it's going to have and that's something that DM can very easily play with because I think a DM would be very willing to do that to make the story work. but I, I'd be concerned about you know a PC uh, you know cutting off their their hand and cutting out their eye and replacing them and then acting basically the same.
0: Yeah, I do think it takes a certain kind of player, a player who really enjoys role playing. And I think it takes a certain kind of group if you are going to give this to one of your players. Everybody has to be on board with uh, Jack's going to be evil and there are going to be consequences to that, you know. Um, So I, I think you're right. It's definitely a thing that uh great to attach to an npc for sure uh make them pretty evil but it's also something that you should proceed with caution uh before giving to a a pc who's going to take it and run with it and make sure you're giving it to the right pc because it may not matter if somebody's not as into the well you're neutral evil. that's great well i have x-ray vision i don't care that i'm neutral you know uh i think you are absolutely correct let's talk to some people who I know personally have experience with the fourth edition hand and eye of Vecna, Alex Basso. What did you think of the hand and eye?
1: Uh, so, yeah, I mean, like, like you said, we've had experience. We did run a, my first campaign, one of our, our happy go lucky gnome ended up with the uh, hand and eye of Vecna. And he, uh, he changed dramatically in personality. Um, I don't remember too much about the power of it. Um, I know he would occasionally do some things and like John said before that that there was a concordance score in fourth edition which I really liked so as you used it you know it would like you and you'd gain more power with it but I don't remember that many negative downsides besides you know being evil and all and eventually uh, betraying the party but you know that's minor (laughs) this one just looking at the eye of Vecna like the one the downside when you cast a spell with it you have a 5% chance to have your soul ripped out and devoured and then become an npc under the dm's control. Wow, that's terrifying. <laughs> Why would, that is such a risk. Why would anyone want to do that? That's I think that one's a little too extreme, especially when comparably the hand is just suggestion being cast on you. Um so I'm going to say those are those are not not really even um, on on downsides. Uh but besides that, I uh you know that i still hate both of these these
3: uh, artifacts and i'd like to never see them again i feel like these would actually be slightly better for a maybe not a low tier campaign but like a level 5 to level 15 campaign or something i i feel like at 20th level there's just no reason a character would use it. like if you wanted a pc to have to make a choice they're they're actually not powerful enough to to really entice a level 20 player to do much with them like the The idea that there's a chance your soul can get ripped out of your body, like I just would not use that power if I was a level twenty character. Like the things that you can do with it are spells that, if you were any type of mage, you're really going to be able to cast anyway, or some equivalent. Sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think these are definitely items that you need to look long and hard at and think about how you're going to use them in your campaign. Uh, and you're right. Maybe it is better to use them at lower level when they are much more tempting as opposed to at higher level. If your plan is to try and tempt players into using it because they both have the unfortunate property of once they are removed, you die, which is also a pretty big risk, uh, considering I would imagine. People are going to be after those powerful items if they are attached to you. Uh, Rudy Basso, I know you are probably not a fan of these items, uh, but how do you think they're playing out here in 5th edition?
1: Uh, Yeah, I'm with Alex. I hate these stupid things. Um, I don't want to see them anywhere in my campaign. I want them to go away. But, uh, John, I don't think I agree with you. You know, Last week you guys talked about in the deck of many things, there's a card that changes your alignment. I think that's really scary to me. Um, I think that is a dangerous thing to play with, and it really needs to have a long discussion with your DM if the player wants to go for it. Mechanically, I think the hand is far superior to the eye, and Alex hit a big part, is that the negative with the eye is if you fail your roll, you are done, whereas with the hand, you get suggestion, which you can break out of. But no one's mentioned that together, if you have both of these, you can insta-kill anything with a skeleton. You can turn its bones to jelly and bring its HP down to zero, which is crazy. You can essentially be king as long as you have people to fight oozes for you, because you can just touch anything and probably kill it.
0: Let's talk about the Orb of Dragonkind, guys. Uh, this is another very iconic item that you see in all editions of D&D, and I want to talk to you about, do you like it? What do you think? How awesome is its power to call forth chromatic dragons. Uh, would you like one as a player? Would you give one to your party as a DM? John Fisher.
3: Uh, as a player, I cannot imagine a scenario in which I would ever use the orb of dragon kind or even consider using it. Like actually looking at its main power, it does not control dragons. It simply calls them to you and then they are angry at you when they get there. <laughs> I feel like that's missing a, a key step uh, for a player to use, and that is the make the dragon not be angry at you anymore step. So uh, from, a, from the point of view of DM, I can see how this would work great as a MacGuffin. If the bad guy gets the Orb of kind before you can destroy it, uh, he is going to call all the dragons in the vicinity to kill the everything... That is great from a DM's point of view. And that this is actually, when I was reading this, is when I realized, uh, this in particular, is when I realized that you, in the terms of the DMG, is definitely the DM and not the player. Uh, because a player would not use this ever. It would just be a terrible idea.
1: I totally disagree. The first thing I thought was, I want this so I can go hunt dragons. So I can find out where they are, and I can get them out of their lair so they come to me and I can fight them. That was the first thought I had. This would be great if I and my high-level friends wanted to go kill some dragons and get their treasure. And I know Alex likes fighting dragons. If you, make, the
3: them, if you make them leave their lair 40 yeah. miles away, you're
0: not going to get their treasure. Well, and, and I will point out that it calls all dragons in a 40-mile radius, not just one. And uh, multiple dragons could show up if you were using the orb to call them. Allison, what are your thoughts on the Orb of Dragonkind?
2: All I can do is think of how terrifying this could be and how as a player I would I would definitely not want this. As a DM for the big bad evil guy or something Absolutely. I'd love to give the the evil person this this orb, orb of dragon kind to summon dragons and then you know maybe maybe the players are are trying to kill him or her and then they're like, you know what, I'm just gonna summon a bunch of dragons. There's probably a bunch in the area, maybe, right? Sure, whatever 40 mile radius, they'll come and they'll kill the players and I can escape. But as a player, it's like you you, you can't you can't tame them. You just you you call them and they're there and they're angry and just all sorts of no. Um, as a player, I'd be like, how do I destroy this? As, as a DM, I'd be like, how do I destroy my players? <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, cause all sorts of interesting things to happen. Start a war. Who knows? Whatever it may be. I would not want it as a player, though. I just, I can't. Rudy, you're very brief. I <laughs> am way different than you in that sense there.
0: Well, Alex Basso, what are you thinking? Are you on Rudy's side or are you on Team Fisher Rossi?
1: I'll be honest. I did also think of using it to kill dragons because <laughs> uh, uh, I hate dragons and they all need to die. You guys have point. you've had some good points. I feel like it probably wouldn't be that smart of an idea when 10 dragons come at once. I don't think any party would be prepared for that, but otherwise I don't, yeah, I don't really see why I would want it as a character. Um, it doesn't seem worth it, but yeah, it's you know, a special dragon slaying party optimized to fight evil dragons that'd be cool maybe unless the person controlling it uh fails the charisma check and is under control of it the entire time
0: so let's move on then to our next thing which you guys will need if you're going to be calling some dragons forth which is the firearms explosives and alien technology preview that is very interesting to see. Essentially, we've got some old firearms, we've got some modern firearms, and then we've got some quote unquote futuristic weaponry, um, like laser and antimatter rifles. What do you guys think about this kind of thing? Um, do you like seeing? this sort of technology and to what level do you like seeing it in your fantasy role-playing games and let's begin with you rudy basso
1: so i like it because i like technology and fantasy i think these would be great in eberron if we do see an eberron um setting created something like a musket or a pistol would be an awesome addition and seems to work likewise some sort of uh grenade some sort of Thing like that, some sort of, some sort of, um, but it's also really neat because you can now make a game in a modern setting and have rules for weapons that we would use in a modern setting. Which, if you've got it, if you're a DM who wants to really do something outside the box, whether it be for a one shot or for an extended campaign, you now have rules to use an automatic rifle or a shotgun or an automatic pistol, or you can do something set where it's in the future and you're using alien weapons. I think this is a great addition to the DMG. Because a lot of times people want to do stuff like that. They want to see what it would be like to have a war. Like I guess urban fantasy would be. Uh, it would be perfect with rules like this.
0: Yeah, my first thought was, what a cool post-apocalyptic campaign you could run with exactly. all of these yeah. things. You know. Um, yeah, I, I definitely think it it opens wide a doorway of possibilities uh, just by adding a few items here, which is pretty cool. Alex Basso.
1: I mean, I definitely would prefer if maybe they expanded the Renaissance items and had less alien, wep- futuristic, and modern weaponry. I don't get why the the one that could be most likely in some sort of fantasy setting is the smallest one. Um, but, I mean, the other items, I guess, serve as a, a good baseline for someone, you know, if they want to create more weapons. Because, I mean, you can't really do a, a true modern Combat with only five five guns is way more than that, right? There's, there's hundreds of guns. It's a good. I, I feel like it's a good baseline. Like this is how powerful it would be. Um, I actually I really like just the the very basic rules of uh trying to identify an alien weaponry, and it just makes me think of I don't know, just like someone playing around with it and uh, you know possibly figuring it out or you know maybe more likely learning absolutely nothing and wasting their time.
0: Allison Rossi, I want to know what you think. How do you feel about this? What level of technology do you like in your fantasy role-playing games?
2: Well, as someone who started playing tabletop role-playing games with Gamma World, I find this really interesting just to kind of see what they're bringing in here with firearms. Um, I think as a DM, I would allow all of them, if it fit in with the setting, like role-playing-wise, like I don't really see a energy cells or laser rifles being used on the sword coast. Um, like in, in order the dragon queen that I'm running right now. Um, but I think for, for a homebrew campaign or something like that, they would be really interesting to, to use uh, either for your players or for NPCs. And, and it would be interesting to see how people kind of work around them from going from swords and shields and, and maces and things to uh, say a laser pistol or a revolver or something. I think I think it, it could bring a lot of fun and a lot of expansion to things.
3: John Fisher thoughts. Oh, yes! I am so excited. Um, all right. So uh, there were a couple of things that bothered me uh, for no other reason than I really wanted to be bothered, but nonetheless,
4: <laughs> it
3: happened. <laughs> so the shotgun being less powerful than the hunting rifle. Get out of here definitely not <laughs> ridiculous I think that's no way just no way get out of here uh, so a- actually Alex I wanted to respond to something that you said I think that maybe this is sort of how they want to go about this like if you look at the options in the players handbook as far as weapons go there, there's actually less uh, less variety than in previous editions and I think that's because they they really wanted to be like okay these are the things that are functionally different and if you want to call it something else, great. But if you don't, then you don't have to, and here's the stats for a weapon that you could use. Um, and I, I kind of feel like that's how they were now. Like If, the, if you want to do a blunderbuss, you would just take the shotgun and make it a single-shot weapon, and then it's the blunderbuss, right? I mean, there's not too much you have to do to reskin these as as things that, that work the way you want them to. Uh, I would be super excited to see, pretty much as it gets more and more advanced, uh, the more I want to see it, not because I want to use it, but because I want to see like goblins and orcs and half-orcs find them first before the party and try and figure them out. I think that'd be hilarious. <laughs> um, my character right now is a half-orc, and if we ever found one of these, his attempts to figure it out, I would really enjoy playing that. I think that would be a lot of fun for me, if no one else. Um yeah, that's pretty much it. I like that you—it's intelligence check to figure it out because it's there's not a lot of things that you can use intelligence for it right now that are combat related. And this is kind of a combat related intelligence thing, so that's cool. One other—the only other issue I had really was um, the way like proficiency sort of works. Like, uh, I just don't see it taking 250 days to get proficient proficient with a revolver. Like, it's—I I feel like that's too much time. I'm assuming that it's that the proficiency rules are somewhat similar to what's in the PHB, because the PHB doesn't talk about weapon proficiencies. It's you know learning how to use tools. Mm-hmm. Um, but ostensibly, there's going to be something in the DMG about how you can how a character can train to be proficient with a weapon. But with guns, like the entire reason guns are a thing is because they're easier to use than bows and arrows and crossbows.
0: All right. Well, let's uh, roll my interview with Wolfgang Bauer of Kobold Press. He stopped by on Skype to talk about the Cobalt Guide to Combat. Let's roll it. Rolling. All right, I'm here, guys, with Wolfgang Bauer. He's the kobold-in-chief of Kobold Press. He is no stranger to this podcast, and he is at least a challenge rating 30 NPC. Uh, <laughs> how are you doing, Wolfgang? I'm doing
4: great. Thank you for that. CR30. Yeah. <laughs> Look out to I'm coming for you. <laughs>
0: exactly, exactly. Well, we're here to talk about the Kobold Guide to Combat. Um, And a little while ago, you guys put out the lovely, lovely Cobalt Guide to Magic, which is a, you know, it's a series of essays written by some of the biggest names in the biz, yourself included. We got Zeb Cook, Ed Greenwood, Jeff Grubb, just to name a few. Monty Cook's in there, Um, you know, and all talking about the nature of magic and different things you can do in your campaign with magic and ideas about magic. It's really a rich Book And I I loved it. So I was happy to hear that you guys are coming out with one of these for combat. Is this going to be a similar thing to the Guide to Magic?
4: It is. It is very much a uh, a stew of ideas and hints and tips on gameplay and story by uh, game designers and a few novelists. Um, and names you know, right? So if we uh, if we can get Ed Greenwood showing up and saying, hey, let, let me tell you what I want to tell you about magic, uh, we we will swing the cobalt gates wide and say, yes, Mr. Greenwood, we would love to hear from you. <laughs> or, or from Rob Hainsu, or Steve Winner or, you know, uh, Chris Pramis from the Green Ronin. Uh, all these sorts of folks show up and give us, like, their best shot on what do people need to know, um, what can make your combat Better, right? So it's about um, giving you ideas, uh, giving homebrewers, like, you know, if you're homebrewing beer, you, <laughs> you have all these fancy ingredients, but you got to start with uh, with some starches and some barley and something to ferment, right? And that's our goal, is to, to give you um, ideas and inspiration and tools that you can take back to your table, um, no matter what system you're running, right? I mean, we sort of we assume you're playing a fantasy role-playing game that, you know, rhymes with dungeons and flagons. But, <laughs> uh, but yeah, it could be anything, right? You could be playing um, Ars Magica. You could be playing Paranoia. You could be playing um, some new system, right? Uh, you could be playing Fate. Sure. Uh, and you'll still get something out of this. Um, so, so the idea with Guide to Combat was, you know, let's face it, Extreme violence is at the heart of many a role-playing experience, right? It's like, all right, I want to blow stuff up. How can I do that better? And, and, and the answer is not, well, here's how you optimize your character. Although, I mean, that's certainly an answer. That depends on your system. Mm-hmm. But the answer is also, well, let's talk a little bit about, you know, does your dwarven berserker have a battle cry? Okay, good. <laughs> now, let's talk about, you know, what uh, what does that battle cry do for you when there's siege engines on the battlefield? Mm-hmm. Oh, mm, that's sort of intimidating. I have a harder time feeling totally enthused about taking down that giant robotic steam cannon, you know? Um, <laughs> and it's just sort of throwing stuff out of left field. Some of it's really character-based. Some of it's really aimed at the game master. Uh, and some of it is is think pieces by people who... Uh, frankly, we brought into the Cobalt Guide to Combat because they are veterans, uh, or they have been nurses, combat nurses in Vietnam, um, or they are martial artists, or they have, you know, some other uh, background. And some of them are game designers who have spent way too much time thinking about the Eastern Front, right? <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I mean, we're we're always a little bit all over the map with the Cobalt Guides and people, and every time I'm like. Is it a little too crazy to talk about this? Is some homebrew game master really gonna get something out of it? And then, you know, I go to the convention or I I go to the message boards and people say, you know, that piece on like basic mapping in the guide to world building. <laughs> that was what I needed to hear. I didn't know how to get started, right? Um so that's that's what we're aiming for. I can talk about my particular I always aim to do a couple of essays in each one of these. That's one of my questions. What did you write for us this time? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Well, this time uh, I wrote one about speed of combat. And this is really a game-centric piece, right? Um, Because one of the things that people complain about with role-playing games is they say... Wow, you know, that was fifteen minutes of awesome jam-packed into four hours. <laughs> and I'm like, what? No, your game's too slow, right? You need to speed things up and keep it exciting. Um and I don't I don't pick on any particular system in the Speed of Combat essay, but I do pick a part What are the levers, right? As a game designer or as a game master, what optional rules are going to speed up your play and make people pay attention because it's moving fast? And conversely, which things are going to slow down play? Because slowing down play, I mean, the point of my essay is it isn't necessarily bad to have a slow combat. If it's a siege or if it's a grinding trench warfare thing or if it's something that's supposed to feel like you know, days go by and we're slowly starving to death in the keep. Well, it should feel slow. <laughs> I mean, you could say a week passes and you all lose another point of constitution, right? But, but how do you want um, how do you want people to feel about combat and how engaged do you want them to be? Uh, depends on decisions you make as a game master and depends on decisions you make as a game designer. So I really lay it out like. These factors, these decision points will speed up your game. And these alternate rules will increase realism, but you're going to have a slower, grindier kind of fight. So that's what that essay is all about. Um, I could probably go into half an hour's worth of detail. <laughs> I could use that essay, it sounds
0: like. So yeah. I think we've all been there before.
4: Yeah, and sometimes it's just, you know, some of it's player management and some of it's like, oh, God, I wanted that optional rule and now it's just killing my time at the table, right? And like oh it's a six-way decision point that's terrible i don't want to do that um <laughs> right and and it'll give you the tools to th- evaluate whether you want some optional rules or maybe you want to simplify your game uh the other one i wrote um one of the other ones i wrote is called siege engines and war machines uh, nice. in fantasy. yeah i love this stuff right i mean when i was a kid i had a little model trebuchet and you could put rocks in one side and you could a little hook to hold down the basket, where the, and it would fling stuff, right? And mm-hmm. was like, I thought that was pretty exciting. It was like a you know three inch tall trebuchet, and it could fling a pebble about you know six feet. <laughs> um, <laughs> but now, of course, the trebuchet is awesome, and there's like pumpkin chunking, right? And there's people throwing. Uh, Geeks have taken over siege machines and <laughs> made them modern, right? And they're cool. If you can take a ballista bolt and throw it at a chunk of steel and say, "Wow, it just ripped right through that van," right? Mm-hmm. That's pretty impressive stuff. And these are big, violent war machines that were totally common. Um, you can say the chariot was a type of war machine. Certainly, trebuchets, ballista. The Romans had them, right? They're They're totally period for any medieval or Roman or earlier um, game. So why don't we see more of them and, and why aren't they more exciting, right? So I talk about adding magic to siege engines and talking about, you know, the Grand Sultan's dread cannon Um, being a walking siege engine with its own core of engineers that tend to it and dark magicians that load the ammunition. And when they fire it, it screams across the sky, right? It's like, oh, yeah, now that's a siege engine that I can get into as a role player. (laughs) right? And, and, I mean, some settings do this better than others. Like Eberron, you kind of have a sense that hey, there was a war here, and people think about that. Game designers think about it when they're writing adventures for it. And other settings, it's like, well... We don't do much with it. But I think if you have a castle or a town or a war in your adventure or your campaign, um, this essay is going to make it, you know, uh, better, mm. more magical. And it talks about... Oh, man, I could really... <laughs> <laughs> the whole essay. I, there's two or three different ways to go about structuring a scene that's, you know, on a chaotic battlefield. It's like and And then you want to think about the after effects, too. Like, I have to talk about players are inevitably going to get their hands on this stuff. Right. Yeah. And all of a sudden they've got the grand sultan's dread cannon and, you know, they've got a necromancer in the group so they can, they can load that thing slowly. <laughs> well now what? Right. <laughs> Nothing can stop them. Um, so thinking about like the end game about siege engines and war machines is important too. When you're, when you're home brewing one of these monstrosities, um, there's a couple of pretty common tricks. You know, you, you got to leave, uh, you got to leave the heating duct just here so that one arrow can get down there, right? Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> or it runs on fuel or it sinks into a swamp or it's got some sort of chain de- genie that keeps it going. <laughs> there are many ways to do it and I spell them out. Um, but disabling these things is often the whole point of what the char- characters are trying to do. Um, and sometimes it's like, Okay, as Game Master, we've been having a lot of fun stomping around the countryside with this terrifying everyone, but <laughs> I'm to turn my fantasy RPG into, like, you know, battle tech with oh, spells. Nice.
1: <laughs> so
4: so how do I stop the monstrosity I've created? <laughs> um, and I talk about that in there, uh, in there as well. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah. And believe it or not, this is one of the few books where I actually have a third essay in it, and it's on a totally... It's on a topic people don't like to talk about when they're player characters. <laughs> <laughs> it's called on being a target. Oh, interesting. Right, and it's about bravery and cowardice and retreat in-game combat ah, <laughs> because you know this right every game master knows this. it's like oh man i threw another wave of orcs and another wave of orcs i thought they were gonna retreat and then i killed them all right
0: right, right. yeah exactly
4: there's this psychology of i'm the hero and especially in highly balanced uh, rpgs you know in call of cthulhu retreat has much less stigma
3: <laughs> than,
4: than it does in like Three point five or fourth edition, where the assumption is the encounters are mostly balanced, and you, can, you should be able to deal with it, right right, yeah, uh, and there are some game systems where the default assumption is no, you shouldn't be able to deal with it. you know you, you should feel proud to retreat and come back when you've got Jerry cans of gasoline to burn everything. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, the whole point of the essay is, you know, there's a time when it's it's appropriate for characters to be brave and bold and you shouldn't take that away from them. And I talk about player agency, like, you know, do you ever want like fear spells, right? Mm-hmm. Fear spells say your character runs whether you want your character to run or not if you fail to save. And that's that's like an acceptable thing in a in a high fantasy system. But if you run a gritty realistic low magic setting but you still want some sort of morale system well what does that mean you know can you talk your players into accepting uh <laughs> some type of morale mm-hmm. and and i kind of propose a morale system in this essay which says you should only slowly <laughs> take away player agency, right? Right. Because the assumption is often if you're a coward and you've, your morale has broken and your character is, you know, curled up in the corner, not contributing to the fight, well, that's not a lot of fun. That's about as much fun as being paralyzed, right? Uh-huh. That's only with more social stigma attached. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, man, your character sucks. Right. He's just hang it in the corner. He's afraid. The rest of us are suffering up here on the front, right? <laughs> so. So one option is to say, well, it's possible for characters to be fearful or less effective without being completely immobilized, right? Um, And there are certain auras of fear. And if you are a Balrog and you show up and everyone, you know, (laughs) is going to be cleaning out their breeches later but still fights, well, okay, there's a morale effect going on. Some people will run and return quickly. There's ways to sort of turn bravery and morale into a resource, basically. Right, um, yeah. And if you do that, and if you do it well, I don't design the whole system, but I kind of lay out how you might, <laughs> then, then maybe you've got something that applies to, well, certainly all that that war campaign with siege engines I was just talking about, right, where sometimes the patrol just decides to cut and run because oh my goodness it's the dread sultan's cannon run <laughs> um that's the thing to do and and other times um you stand you fight it's not just a saving throw it's a decision hey we're going to burn some of our our morale points on making a stand here knowing right that well, there might be a big boss encounter later, and then we're down to, whatever, a few morale points to spend, like action points, later, and we're, we're running thin on our resources. Th- I think that can make it tactically interesting. I think that cutting and running is actually... Pretty frequent in fantasy fiction, I want to say.
0: Oh yeah, I, I mean, if you look at Lord of the Rings, you know, the Hobbits most of the time are cutting and running. It seems. Yeah,
1: like. they're not. They're <laughs> not taking on the ork pie. No, and
0: they
4: do, it doesn't usually go well, right? <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I, I think I think sort of narrative story type gamers. We'll probably dig this way more than like tactical character optimization players mm-hmm. um but i wanted to at least make it plausible to say you know your your farm boy with a spear at first level is is not standing up to the the dragon that is flying overhead he is seeking shelter immediately right that's that's a logical decision and we can enforce that in rule-based ways or we can enforce that uh in other ways um the other thing I talk about in, on being a target is picking on players, but that's a whole nother topic. Oh. <laughs> this is how to make people feel the sting of fear and the sense that, really, the GM is out to get me. <laughs> um, because you're not using mechanics to enforce bravery or cowardice, right? Right, yeah. It's more stuff like, you know, the orcs all say, get the elf! oh man i'm the only elf in the party oh come on (laughs) get him javelin airs throw oh yes (laughs) and all of a sudden you're like i'm the only elf damn it damn it it." yeah that's terror terror rises quickly in that
0: situation for it sure.
4: It can, right? You yeah. you know the javelins are coming, the shaman is looking at you, the hill giants picking up a boulder and you don't have to guess where the GM is not rolling dice for who gets hit randomly, right? It's mm-hmm. like get the elf. Well, that's brutally unfair, right? <laughs> 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 but but players do it to bad guys all the time. Mm -hmm. and I think I haven't done enough of this. I I wrote this topic without having done it more than once or twice at my table, and different players react differently, right? Um, If you give them a little heads up that, hey, I might be picking on you, that certainly doesn't hurt, and picking on the tough guy dwarf is usually a better bet than, you know, picking on the um, uh, delicate druid who's just really in it to pick mushrooms, right? Right. so you, some players like being targeted and toughing it out or saying, okay, guys, everybody heal me because I just got swarmed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it changes the dynamic of the combat. So it's something you could do under any rule system. And it's the kind of idea that the Kobold Guide to Magic is like meant to provide, right? It's different play styles, different ways to challenge your players in combat, different ways to think about... Um, the conflicts they're in and the decisions they have to make because the guy who's the one lone elf has a decision to make. (laughs) And, um, and it means in that case, right, it's totally about the player's choice. You've just made that choice really interesting Um, about how brave and bold they really are and how much of a hero they really want to be. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So, I mean, those are my three essays and I've given you like the heart of each of them, but sometimes the devil's in the details.
0: Well, I have to say, those sound, uh, just those three make it sound worth it to me, but I'm sure you also have a, a host of other essays and other authors as well, so who else is in this book and what can we look forward for, to from some of them?
4: You know, Oh, man, I love everyone in this book, and some of them are really well-known names, and some of them uh, you may not have heard of, right? But I think they, they brought the good stuff. Nice. Um, Like Rob who did a whole thing on monsters, which is wonderful. Um, (laughs) Carlos Oval, who's done a bunch of stuff for Cobalt Press. Uh, He did a bunch of deep magic, and he's done things before then. Talks about um, stealth and ambush and combat from the shadows. Mm, nice. um, and it's really a great, uh, if you're a rogue and you, <laughs> you should read this, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, we have a thing on reconnaissance and scouting, which is again sort of in the roguish realm. But we have people like Colin McComb, right, who's, uh, who's working with Monty Cook or with the uh, Torment Numenera video game team right now, but who also worked at TSR and Planescape and this. Just awesome stuff. Um, Colin kind of talks about warping environments, right? Like, what happens when you go through the looking glass and the environment around you is suddenly—it's um, not a ten-foot corridor, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's more Planescape. like yeah. It's really strange. Um, so that's a good one. And then there's someone you probably don't know. Stephen Robert has a thing on how to stage a good, a great barroom brawl, right? Yes, like, it's a classic. Um there's a uh, Miranda Horner does a thing on archery um I mentioned the thing on battle cries already uh it talks about like military systems. Steve Winner who uh was my writing partner on the d and d fifth edition adventures uh he talks about military systems and like how different cultures organize themselves so right
0: cool, that's so cool yeah. yeah
4: and chris primus who is a war gamer from way back when and of course a well-known rpg designer uh he takes the bad guy side he he does a a thing on tactics for tyrants like (laughs) (laughs) optimizing bad guys is the way i describe that (laughs) (laughs) um and you know jeff grubb talks about like why we fight he his he like kicks off the whole book like why why do we have combats in role-playing games at all right like What's the point? Mm-hmm. Um, and does a big picture kind of piece there. Um, oh, there's Rory Miller, who's more of a novelist, talks about stuff that people get wrong, like movies and novels get totally wrong yeah. about <laughs> violence, right? Like, because he has real world experience of these things. Sure. Um, and and he just sort of talks about, well, you know, you can game it any way you want, but if you're playing like a, you know a modern uh rpg here's some things you should know about what really happens when the cops kick down the door right um here's what really happens in a brawl Uh, and and it's interesting right because we spend a lot of time saying well it's more realistic combat system i've got over here (laughs) (laughs) and he kind of goes yeah right a fair bit of that right like some of the assumptions that we have based just on hollywood film type stuff um yeah, of course. and that's like not even all of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I could go. I, there's more. I'm sure I oh, forgot. I'm sure. Uh, um, but it's loaded with stuff like that. That all of which is meant to just say, um, "Hey, you know, up your game, uh, improve, improve your next combat encounter, or you know, when you're designing um, your your story arc, think about." how the how this is gonna work over here, think about uh, what your options are and sort of open up um a new bag of tricks, frankly, because some of these people have been writing games for 15 or 20 years, some of them have written awesome novels for just as long. Uh and some of them are just like war gamers who have paid attention <laughs> <laughs> and or uh or gamers who have written for Cobalt Press repeatedly and in inspiring ways. So we uh, we took the best of the best, um, and the editor Jenna Silverstein is also the person who was the editor on our like, double award-winning Cobalt Guide to World Building. Nice. So I I gotta say it's a really tight collection. Um, she got the best out of all of these things and kept the writers like on point and and providing useful useful stuff.
0: I uh I have to ask you if there is any discussion in any of these essays about the nature of hit points and what hit points actually mean to different
1: <laughs> you know, people.
4: No, that's a great topic. And, <laughs> and it started with like 60 topics. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and then we said, well, if we do that, it's a hardcover and it's like, 400 pages right (laughs) so we had to pick and choose and i i tended to choose the more game oriented ones and jenna tended to pick some of the like story ones like how does combat actually work in your campaign or how does it work in fiction narrative sense um and other people took completely different things away from our list of hey here's the topics we'd love to cover but honestly we could do the Cobalt guide to combat book too because i mean it's really at the heart of so much role-playing is like are you doing a good job with the combats <laughs> right. are they memorable or does everybody just sort of yawn and say okay loot the bodies give me the xp um i think there's nothing quite so sad as the combats where it's like yeah we won but you know, move on, kick the next door. It wasn't, it wasn't very memorable, and not every combat can be or should be like a big deal. But but I've had a couple of campaigns where I feel like, man, my big finale turned out to be a big flop, and I I want to do better. Um, so in those cases, uh, I think there's some some good stuff here. I think there's a whole thing to be written, like on the super crunchy side, like. You know, abstract hit points versus you know limb-based. <laughs> yeah, you know, sort of a wound system, um, which you used to see more of, right? Like, oh, you know, your left arm is injured. Yeah, Rollmaster was notorious for, you know, lung eviscerated, cannot breathe, instant death. Um, <laughs> those critical hit tables they had, which were an attempt, right, to get specific about about what is damage and what are hit points. But um but most systems abstract it away. So I mean my short answer would be well hit points are an easy way for me to measure whether I should run. Uh, <laughs> I <laughs> like that play. answer. I like yeah. that answer. Well you know first level characters are the ones who are best known for retreating because they have the fewest resources in that department, right? <laughs> um, but but the fact that Call of Cthulhu characters never really level up hit points ever, right. you know, that probably explains the play style of a, a Trail of Cthulhu or a Call of Cthulhu game, where investigators are way more cautious than your your uh, you know, bold dwarven barbarian. Yeah, no, there's there's plenty more topics, man. I could go on. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we we tried to hit like the highlights. We tried to give people. Like the things that are going to be the most valuable, both for planning your next adventure uh, or improving on a store-bought one, and and like making the most of the time you have at the table um, without like dragging stuff on into just dice fests. Which I don't know. I used to like dice fests, and I've been leaning away from. Let's just roll a lot of dice. Toward if we're rolling dice, it better be fun right? Like, the results of the roll should be fun.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I agree, I th- right? It's a game and you, everybody's taking time out to, to do it, so.
4: Yeah, and I mean, saying, hey, I hit for 12 points of damage can absolutely be fun if, you know, everyone at the table knows and agrees, oh my god, 12 points, right? <laughs> but especially for new players <laughs> um, or younger players, sometimes numbers aren't enough. Um, and I know I, I lean towards story and flavor and simulation in in my preferences at the table, I want everybody to have a good time, right? Like the numbers people to feel like, Hey, all that character optimization is paying off right now. Look at me. Right. The other essay I think we really needed in here, but it's actually in one of the other cobalt guides is, is spotlight at the table time. And I can't remember if it's in the complete cobalt guide to game design or if it's in one of the early volumes, but uh, you know, giving players their heroic moment, um, which is a topic that comes up and it's, it's a fairly well-known rule of game mastering, but but one that even experienced, you know, GMs tend to forget, right? It's like, I want my monster to shine. Okay, that's good. And then let the player shine for a while, too. <laughs> uh, yeah, we had a great time putting this together. Um we're going to do a signing, actually, down in Seattle at the University Bookstore. This is kind of a big deal for Cobalt Press. We've got uh, Chris Pramus and me and Jeff Grubb and I think John Pitts and Jana Silverstein are all going to be there. So, like four authors and an editor, maybe five authors and an editor. Wow. Yeah, we're going to sign the book. It's going to be on November 5th. If you're in the Seattle area or if you're at the University of Washington, I would urge you to come down to the University Bookstore. Uh, We'll be signing them, we'll be talking about the book. And honestly, the University Bookstore there, they host people like George Martin and Neil Gaiman. So when I say it's a big deal for Cobalt Press that they asked us to, to host an event, I'm like, I'm totally fine with the fact that it takes five Cobalt authors to equal one George Martin. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure the line at our signing will be modest by comparison, but uh, but we're really looking forward to it. Uh, so the book launches uh, yeah, November 5th. We've got... Uh, I got a ton of pre-orders for it, and um, yeah, it has just turned out stupendously well.
0: Yeah, where can I go if I want to if I want to buy
4: it? Should I go to the Cobalt website? Uh, the Cobalt website is absolutely a perfectly great place to stop and pick it up because we will have it in stock, <laughs> uh, and obviously financially we do well with that. But you know, if it's more convenient for you, or if it's just simpler for you because you know you don't want to open another account to go to the Amazon. Uh, bookstore, you can. Uh, it's also available through your friendly local hobby store. It's in major distribution. Um, and it's available, I believe, at the... Uh, it will be available next week or so, uh, at the at the Paizo online store. Oh,
0: that's great. So you guys can, if you have the internet, or if you have feet and a game store near you, you can definitely yep. go check out this book. And it sounds like it's definitely going to be worth it and if people want to find you wolfgang where can they find you
4: well i'm on twitter as monkey king and Cobalt press is me and a bunch of other folks you can find me at either one of those twitter accounts I'm on facebook i'm on well i'm at koboldpress.com we have a blog that we run there and we often run contests for new writers and some of those writers wind up in our next Cobalt guide so you never know
0: nice nice well that's awesome well thank you for coming and sitting with us at the round table today i really appreciate it wolfgang
4: oh uh, i love the round table always happy to chat with you guys i hope i uh, hope to sign a few uh, few of these books in the not too distant future and to hear what people think of it because feedback good and bad let me know what you think well if it's anything like the other guides
0: i am on board so uh no doubt the quality is there
4: thank you very much
1: thank you
0: All right, guys. Well, that's going to do it for this week's podcast. Where can people find you, Rudy Basso?
1: Hey, you can follow me on Twitter at Rudy Basso. R-U-D-Y-B-A-S-S-O. Hey, thanks.
0: Allison, where can people find you?
2: Well, you can find me mostly two places on Monday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I have a group that streams D&D 3.5 E on Twitch. So you can find us at twitch.tv slash padfoot240. That's P-A-D-F-O-O-T 240, not 420, because some people will mess it up by accident. Um, or you can also find me on Twitter. I'm at R underscore 91. That's all is on for, for Allison there. Also, a lot of people spell that wrong, unfortunately. So, either one of those places.
0: Excellent. And John Fisher, where can people find you? Uh,
3: If you really have a hankering for a Twitter feed that updates every couple of months once, you should definitely follow me at TheLastFisher on Twitter.
0: Alex Basso, where can people find you?
1: All right. So, I decided to set up a Twitter. And uh, in doing so, I found out that I did set one up three years ago, (laughs) and I remembered I did that with the goal of following and tweeting uh, certain TV shows and websites to try and get uh, free gifts and contests and never actually went through with it. So I uh, restarted that up, I guess, and uh, still haven't really done much, but you can follow me at at. Y, uh, at yo, Y-O underscore Alex Basso.
0: Guys, if you have a question or topic you'd like to hear us discuss on the
1: roundtable, reach out
0: to me on Twitter at James Intercasso at J-A-M-E-S-I-N-T-R-O-C-A-S-O or leave us a comment on the Tome Show's website, thetomeshow.com and a quick shameless plug for me, check out my blog, which is all about Exploration Age, the fifth edition world that I'm building. It's at worldbuilderblog.me okay everyone thanks for listening and thanks to rudy alex allison and john also many thanks to jeff griner for letting us join the tone show lineup our theme music which you're listening to right now was composed by eric michaels don't forget to go to thetoneshow.com and use the affiliate links whenever you shop on amazon or DD classics to support the show And hey, if you like the show, do me a favor and go like us on iTunes. And also, go like us on Facebook, alright? Keep on rolling and keep on listening to The Roundtable.